Welcome back to Venture Studio, the podcast where your host, Dave Lerner, entrepreneur, angel investor in 70 plus companies and director of entrepreneurship at Columbia University, interviews the angel investors and venture capitalists who make up New York City's entrepreneurial ecosystem. I am your producer, Kevin Weeks. This week's guest is Jason Cahill of McCune Capital. All of our shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. And make sure you subscribe on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio. Any feedback or five-star reviews are always much appreciated. And now let's kick it to Dave to introduce Jason. Dave? As I mentioned later on in this conversation, it's rare to have a guest on Venture Studio with as diverse a background as that of Jason Cahill. He's a network design engineer, an Army veteran and former Green Beret, a Carnegie Mellon MBA, a successful founder, a much sought after mentor, an angel investor, and now a venture capitalist with his own fund, McCune Capital. He's a seed investor in the arena of infrastructure technology. He backs companies and founders applying transformative tech to old industries. And I learned that he's also still very much a builder at his core, a builder of process, of systems, of mental models, and of great relationships with founders and fellow investors. Jason also serves as an EIR at Grand Central Tech in their urban tech hub and continues to mentor teams from Carnegie Mellon, ERA, and South by Southwest. We get into all these activities as well as his investment philosophy and thesis and what he's been learning over these years and the many roles that he's played and how he somehow ties so much of this together. I learned a lot and I'm glad you have a chance to get to know Jason of McCune Capital. Enjoy. In office, baby. Jason, great to have you on. How are you? Great. Uh, excited to be on. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, okay, so you're running McCune Capital. Uh, you're doing seed stage investing in, quote, infrastructure tech, close quote, here in New York City. Tell us a little about McCune and, and your approach. Um, sure. I, I guess I'm a little atypical in the sense that um, it seems most VCs have a pretty storied past in financial um, operations. Maybe they sort of cut their teeth at a bank and then became an associate. I come at it from the other angle. Um, I like to build. I've always been a builder from the earliest days. Um, so I kind of, the reason I like seed state specifically is there's a lot more sort of work to do. Um, so I can kind of roll up my sleeves and get involved. So McCune um, looks at, um, we would say at a high level in a macro space, we look at um, new technology attacking older industries. So, right, infrastructure, manufacturing, transportation, energy, agriculture, industries that traditionally maybe haven't had the, they're, they're not the first place that new tech is looking to land, but there's definitely, we see a very rising appetite for sort of new solutions to solve problems. I've looked at your portfolio. What in your portfolio you think is a good example of a company in, in an old industry with new tech being applied in a new business model, what what's a good example for us to, to really understand? Yeah, yeah, I think smarter sorting would be a great example. Um, so a bit of background on them. Um, they take household hazardous waste, which would be things like bleach, ant killer, caulk, um, that are currently being sort of um, collected, bundled, and then put into house, household hazardous, that's a mouthful, household mm-hmm. hazardous waste facilities. Cities like Austin, Boston, Portland, um, Salt Lake City are their, their current customers. And so if you live in one of these cities and you're one of the 10% that sort of self-identify and put your stuff uh, rather than the rest of us jerks that just throw it in the trash, um, there, there's an um, a employee who will, um, based on the chemistry, put it in various bins And then all of that chemistry gets thrown in incinerators. So incineration doesn't exactly make the world go round from an environmental um, perspective. But the other challenge is, say that a brand new bleach bottle has 32 ounces in it. um, And this particular thing that's thrown in the trash has 26 ounces in it. Well, it's not not a a full container that can be sold again at retail, but it's not really trash either. So they have built a... Um, technology, it's a, it's a hardware software play where they have scanners that are able to real-time 
identify based on barcode and machine learning that says if there are two similar barcodes, they can identify what the actual object is. Um, and then they're able to say, okay, great, this item doesn't need to be incinerated, it needs to be resold. So the sort of, the, the excitement around this for me is they're taking waste that was literally being lit on fire and turning around and selling it to, they have early customers um, like the government of Panama. Because of the Panama Canal, they buy more used paint than anyone else on earth and uh, Habitat for Humanity. Habitat certainly is cost constrained, but they are doing great work. So for them, if they say this month we need, uh, you know, a thousand gallons of bleach, they're not really looking for retail. They're looking for a good uh, opportunity. Um, and, and so they've, they've been an exciting uh, company to see. Even in the last couple months, they've really sort of ramped um, on the municipality side. And I, I don't know if I can mention any names today, but they are really starting to look at the commercial side as well. Because you can imagine if you're a large sort of retail um, company, the amount of unsellable products you have it becomes, you know, you're, you're paying dump fees and, and, oh, and yeah. tip fees where all of a sudden um, uh, you, you think of the sort of economics where maybe a pallet of caulk costs you 50, 100, 200 bucks to dump. Now, all of a sudden they're recouping some of that cost. Um, so it's, it's, it's an exciting company. I hope they come to New York because I'm sure a lot of people are, are like me. You know, you have all, all this uh, used paint. <laughs> And other stuff in your garage and you're you don't really know what to do with it and you mm -hmm. don't want to dump it in the trash obviously because you know you feel uh, right. awful about that so you just kind of leave it there in the basement in the garage right 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 so so right so currently they're not on the logistics end of it which i think is what you're talking about more sort of the collection um so they're looking at cities that already have which is which is cynically why they've kind of avoided new york um we New Yorkers think we're awesome at recycling, but sadly, we're not really leading the nation. Um, so, so they're looking at more progressive towns initially, but then also the commercial spaces where they've identified this is a problem. We want to make money from trash. Um, I'd love to see them come to New York because obviously it's the largest city in the U.S. And by that extension, they produce more waste. Um, It'll, it probably won't be on their next, you know, six to twelve month uh, target because I think they need to get some good partners that could do the collection piece. Um, but yeah, we, we we definitely see on the ground here in New York, Dave. We definitely see the problem. Absolutely. Okay, so that gives uh, us a good taste of new tech coming into older industries. Uh -huh. uh, and you're you're on the seed stage. What's your cadence? How many deals are you going to be doing a year? You know, how do you look at your fund? Um, sure. So I guess I should caveat and say, um, because I'm, because I've been an entrepreneur, um, I, I realize the challenges associated with fundraising on that side. And now as an investor, there are sort of ins and outs on investing on that side. So fund one was kind of a, um, a quick in and out, if you will, where, uh, typically if I said my fund was, we'll just use a number that's nice and round. If I was doing a million dollar fund, a, a really small fund, then, you know, statistically, mathematically, people might say do 20, 50 K deals because I initially, because I, I, uh, fund one was basically a vehicle to get to fund two. Right. Um, so we're doing larger than average checks with no follow on out of fund one with the understanding that it's sort of allows us to test our thesis and demonstrate sort of what we're doing as we go into fund two. So I still have dry powder in fund one. Um, we'll end up somewhere around 10 to 12 deals. Um, and then fund two um, is targeting around the sort of 10 to 12 mil space. And we'll probably have around 24 deals out of that. Got you. And, and, the, the, the larger check size, what are you, what are you thinking for fund two in terms of check size? Yeah. So, um, around 500 K. Okay. Really big bets. You're going to be, you're going to be taking early stage rounds with a couple other people. Um, and are you, can I ask this? Are you, are you raising fund two now? Is that okay to discuss or? Um, sure, sure. Um, hopefully the SEC is <laughs> not one of your, uh, <laughs> Um, anyone who wants to talk to us, uh, McCune.vc, we'd love to have conversations. Um, yeah, we're, we're, um, 
I, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know how deep in the weeds, but yeah, we are. People can interpret that however they wish. Uh, yeah. but, but they now have your email <laughs> in terms of what, what's, what's the thinking in fund two with, uh, at seed stage writing substantial checks like that. Tell us the thinking involved. Well, sure. So, um, and, and, and I, you asked me the largest check size. I don't know that that'll be a, a typical check size. Um, but I think, um, I, I've, I've said it often recently, you know, uh, good deals wait for no one good, uh, bad deals wait forever. Um, being, being a, a little bit flexible, especially as, you know, an earlier stage fund, being flexible both to peer funds as well as the, the, um, the entrepreneurs. Um, you know, if I, if I was writing 10 to 50 K checks, I'd probably be better served just doing sort of angel of syndicates. Um, whereas, um, because, um, so I guess by way of background, um, I am a Carnegie Mellon alum who's also a judge for their business panel competition. I'm an ERA alum and judge there. I'm a South by Southwest board advisor um, and an EIR, Grand Central Tech. I put that all in perspective to say I, I, I've been pretty blessed and fortunate with seeing really interesting early stage deals where um, I definitely don't want to sort of poison the well by saying I'm only writing tiny checks. But I don't also want to convince people I'm always writing big checks. I have I have some agility in that space. The thinking really is, um, and, and um, as as I've sort of gotten a good team of advisors around with industry experience, it's um, again as you're as you're seeing these more um, the the seed world has evolved where people people are now with revenue at the seed stage. They've got, you know, prior exits. Um, you know, one of the deals that I did out of Fund One, um, he had a prior exit to Groupon. So these aren't like, you know, um, all G shucks kind of deals where I'm just sort of throwing jello at the wall looking for what sticks. These are, these are um, because of sort of um, who I'm running into in hallways. Um, mm-hmm. these, these, are, these are sort of more interesting deals where I'm not going to put 500K probably into a first-time founder who's pre-revenue, but if it's a sort of serial entrepreneur that's demonstrating a, a good growth metric, um, I'm willing to sort of place a larger bet. You touched on this, but you were, you were a founder uh, before you got into VC. Your, your company was called Transmission, and you ended up selling that to Shipley. What was the name of the company that acquired it? Shiplink. 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 Right. And it was in one of these old industries... To, Tell us a little about transmission and what that was like. Sure. So going back to the, even going back maybe one step before. So um, I was a DC area consultant. um, And so on good days, I would really shift the needle for some big and interesting sort of um, government and quasi-government organizations. And on bad days, I'd literally see people take white papers I'd written and throw them in the trash. Mm -hmm. So that drove me to realize I liked I'd always known I liked building, so I quit my job and went to Carnegie Mellon to get an MBA, a little bit later perhaps than most. Um, And so from day one, I knew I wanted to do something. Um, I was a network engineer as an undergrad, and I'd always tinkered around um, with sort of optimization of data networks. And I knew I wanted to do something similar, but more in the physical space. So that was sort of a thesis I went into business school with, and I'll plug them openly and shamelessly. as as you are a yeah tech minded person looking at MBAs, it's a great place to uh, it, it's a great um, space to play, um, and I and I think you know <laughs> clearly I'm talking to a Columbia guy, so I'm not going <laughs> to plug them too right. much. But, right. but but I think for me it worked well because you know you go into a marketing class and everyone else is talking about the shape of a palm olive bottle and where that should be on the shelf, and I've got my little team of misfits going out to truck stops. Um, with my initial hypothesis that was, if one in five trucks is empty, is there enough demand on the shipper side, uh, on the um, demand side, to fill that capacity? And can we do it in a sort of uh, repeatable and efficient, scalable way? Um, and the answer was a resounding, yes, there's demand. Um, and obviously, there were a million challenges that we ran into over time. Um, but literally, we'd go out with a tray of hot dogs to a truck stop early days and um, 
we just say because we we found that um, truckers only get paid when the engine's moving and they're rolling because they get paid by the mile. So uh, earliest days, you know, we'd have a clipboard and look like the guys you see on the city sidewalks in New York, where you just sort of put your head down and run past quickly. Right. And we thought, okay, we've got to sort of meet them where they are. So I became the hot dog guy of sort of Western Pennsylvania, where we'd we'd sort of hit them up at truck stops. We'd have you know mustard hot dogs, ketchup hot dogs. But it worked, and um, so we got early traction where um, we we were basically. Um, I, I really hate the analog Uber for trucking, but uh, it, it kind of fits. Mm-hmm. Where we were um, signing up truckers, they download our mobile app, and then we'd get customers of various industries. We had a pretty good sweet spot in the sort of fresh and frozen food space because of the sort of volatility and time sensitivity. Um, where, um, you know, truckload full of avocados going from California to Chicago, um, they, they've played on sort of the traditional space, but if it's sort of an ad hoc uh, one-off, and that space, even though ad hoc one-off may, maybe sounds small, it, um, it's like a $70 billion market. So, wow. um, and, and we had plenty of, and, and there are plenty of competitors still in the space that are doing similar things. Um, Jeff Bezos back to play on the sort of last mile side called Convoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the company that's actually probably, um, as I've exited the space, we're all now friendly and chummy. Right, right. Um, and I think uh, Drew McElroy, who's the CEO of Transfix in, here in New York, I'd probably say they're doing the best by all traditional measures. Um, I think his probably unfair advantage is he comes from the industry. Um, so whereas I had to establish relationships from nothing, he, um, I'm, I'm not knocking him. I think it's great, but I think it definitely gives him a leg up on some of the other sort of quantitative thinkers, whereas he had a much a deeper insight into industry. And now I, I know you launched that out of ERA, having been an operator, you know, as opposed to some, some of the other people who, who are in investing and, and all, and it takes all kinds, frankly. And Fred Wilson just wrote a great post recently about how you know his own thinking on this has changed or evolved over the years where you know he's not an operator and there were you know some really great vcs who never never operated companies but they're really good uh at giving strategic advice and overall advice right you're 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 on the operator side how is that informing you as an investor as as you do more and more deals yeah yeah um great question and um and and Maybe touching on um, what you just said regarding Fred. Um, I don't know if you know Charlie Kemper. Yeah, um, so, I remember him. Yeah. Right. So he was one of the original uh, partners. He wrote a blog post, and it, I, I, I forget the exact name, but basically the five personalities that every fund needs. So as I sort of set out to hang my shingle and call myself investor, um, I've been doing angel deals for the last four, four and a half years. Um, but much smaller checks. And when it's your money, you can kind of, you, you don't have to be as I suppose, sort of disciplined and focused. Right. You should be cause it's your damn money, but, be, but um, right. And, and so as I, as I looked at his, um, treatise, if you will, it talked about different, and he was very, um, methodical. As he said, it doesn't have to be all one person. It doesn't have to be five people. You know, like if one of them is operator and one around one is sort of a turnaround specialist or sort of marketing guru. And uh, I, I've, I, I feel bad that I can't sort of shout out all five right now. But um, it's kind of informed, as I said, if I'm going to be a, a solo investor, I need to have smart people around me that I can rely on. So that was sort of the first thing I said was, um, you know, if I'm going to invest, I need to get somebody who can inform me 10x above my own knowledge in sort of the deep nuance finance. Um, and then, um, so, so one of my advisors, for example, he wrote the book on Python because I said, I know, and now he's a sort of machine learning exit. The previous company he worked for, uh, was acquired by IBM. Um, and he's just one of those guys, he can go in a basement and come out six weeks later with this amazing, uh, tech and there's a stack of investors willing to throw money at him. Um, and so Andre's just a really uh, brilliant guy. And, and I think that I have that across my stack of advisors. Um, and so 
to answer your going back now to answer your question, um, what what sort of pushed me towards investing um, as I was seeing more and more interesting deals from an angel perspective. Um, I think what tipped the scale is uh, one deal in particular where somebody said, "Hey, you should invest. This is a great opportunity." And you know, we all have our personal lives, so I had money tied up in. Uh, kitchen renovation and this and that. So I thought this is a great deal, but I've only got like five grand to throw into it that I can kind of feel good about doing right now. And then sort of I, I shook the tree, if you will, and I had sort of three friends who said, "Hey, we can kind of throw money in and and we can kind of make this jump to about a hundred k." And and I thought, huh? Do I have more friends out there? Like. Yeah. And, and and so in the sort of aftermath of transmission, as I'm figuring out what I want to be when I grow up, um, I'd always known I liked sort of advising, mentoring, and I'd done that. And and I think sort of candidly, the reason I hadn't necessarily been super attracted to VC was probably because of the later stage VC model, which is kind of write a 20 mil check and then see in six months. Right. And And I don't say that in a negative way, they, they're doing, they're, they're adding a ton of value in other ways. I mean, the 20 mil. Right. Um, <laughs> um, but for me, I always knew if I, if I wanted to invest, I still want to sort of have my sleeves rolled up, really sort of being involved. Um, and so this just felt more genuine where I had a couple people sort of say, we want you to invest on, on our behalf. And, and I just kind of said, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm not just going to sort of do this as a hobby on the sidelines. I'm going to sort of, you know, do a typical sort of fund structure. Um, and, and then sort of, we, we, we sort of sat around. I said, here are the, like, in order for me to invest, I need to have better than average insight into the industry. I need to have connections to much better than average insight technologists who can sort of speak to that side. Mm-hmm. And I have to feel passionate that there's a huge, um, you know, growth rate that like, what's the sort of unfair advantage that makes this opportunity or this space really exciting to get into. Um, and, and so that was sort of the initial impetus that sort of drove that. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, like, um, it's, it's been, it's been a, a wild, wild ride thus far. That's right. Yeah, I'm. I'm. You're a ground up guy. I mean, I'm listening to the way you described it. It's like, it's coming from your experience as a builder, as a mentor, helping all these entrepreneurs out, running your own company, and it it, it was organic. You're you're looking at something, a deal that you really were excited about. I know you have a family, you have kids. You had kitchen renovations. You're like, man, I how can I scrape together five k? You start cobbling it together. You're like, man, I could do this, but it's a builder's mentality that I'm I'm. That's that's the uh, vibe I'm, I'm getting from this. As as you know, you stood up McCune. Um, well, you've been at it for a while now. You know, fifteen some twenty companies. What what have you? What are you learning about um, some of the keys to this whole seed stage environment? Yeah, you, know, you you wrote a great post as well that I that I want to shout out to. Um, is it a painkiller or a vitamin? But Let's get to that a little later. Sure. What What are some sure. of the things you've been learning that you could share? With us? <laughs> um, sure, sure. Um, I think first and foremost, don't believe the hype. Um, okay. Um, I think I think that you know we all on both sides of the coin have to be sort of brand marketers. We have to be sort of uh, you know uh, three ring circus kind of uh, what do they call them like barkers. Oh yeah, um, the yeah the ringmasters, right? Right, right. You you have to get people excited. That's fundamental. Whether you're selling a product to a customer or whether you're sort of selling to an investor, you've got to be excited. There has to be passion. But um, you know, I've I've seen investor decks that are eighteen pay, uh, eighteen slides long, and there's not even a reference to anything financial. Now now you know while I ha- I didn't ever work at Barclays or Jefferies or Goldman. I do have an MBA, and I can do financial analysis. It's just not sort of a passion of mine. So if somebody's if somebody's hiding from it, um, and and then you start to say, okay, just sort of um, unit level economics, back of envelope type stuff. 
when they say, you know, our market could be, uh, you know, a hundred billion dollars and, and then you say, well, how did you get there? Because there's nothing I can look at that points to that assumption. So I think I've definitely, um, if, if I see a team that's first time entrepreneurs and it's maybe two tech guys and I sort of say, who's going to sell? Oh no, we're going to sort of tweet our way to our first thousand customers. Well, there are moonshots that have done that. Um, but you can count on two fingers how many times it's happened. Um, so I think a lot of the learning is just sort of the, um, you know, deck fundamentals that's on the sort of transactional side. I think on the operational side, um, I, I use a um, Gmail plugin. I guess I'll plug them called Streak. Um, I like it because it uses it, it's kind of a stage gate analysis where I can look at deals and very quickly I can see the last email update I've gotten from them. So as I sort of see them start to age, where huh, it's been now you know at the earliest stages, um, some of the companies I'm talking to two or three times a week. As they're figuring out, okay, they're, they're hiring a full-stack mobile developer, so I'm helping them sort of figure out resume do's and don'ts, um, job description do's and don'ts. But then I have uh, one company in particular where if it goes a month and I haven't talked to them, that's okay. Because they're at a stage where they're kind of, they're probably coming up on A here pretty quickly. Um, but I'll reach out to them if I haven't sort of heard from them in 30, 45 days and just sort of paying them and say, hey, everything good, not trying to get in the way, just want to know how it can be helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed on a press release that you just got to deal with XYZ customer, big congrats. Are there any sort of um, shouldering companies that you can kind of exploit company X with? Let me know how I can help. Um, and, and so I think one of the things I've learned that I've really tried to push companies on is, uh, and I struggled with this as a entrepreneur, you get this big, sexy investor, and I'm not saying I'm big or sexy, but mm -hmm. you, get, you get a new person in your cap table, and you're excited because of the money, but you're also excited because you, you, your brain starts running, how can they help me? I want them to do all these great and wonderful things. You know, as an entrepreneur, that's what I wanted. Um, and, you know, these investors are busy doing a hundred other things. They're thinking about you, but they don't know what's in your head as far as, man, I really want a connection to... Um, this real estate firm, this manufacturing firm. Um, and so I've, I've counseled pretty much every company I've done a deal in, you know, look at my LinkedIn profile as a starter, but more importantly, tell me what you want. Because, you know, if I say, Hey, I had dinner last night with the attorney general of New York state, um, which I coincidentally did a couple months ago. Um, and we were talking about the state of sort of new tech, and, and he was really intrigued and wanted to talk about the earliest stages and how policy is not crushing them. Well, um, that'd be great to follow up with him and say, hey, since we talked last, here are things that your office has either done or overlooked that are affecting and impacting. Those are things that certainly aren't going to show up on a LinkedIn profile. So what I'm saying, I guess, is tell me what you want. You know, if you've got a target list of sort of you're, you're a B2B SaaS model and you've got sort of your dream sheet customers, your middle customers and your sort of everyday customers, figuring out a way to sort of engineer a relationship. Because I think that um, by and large, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Nico Bonastos, I'm butchering his name, from, a G, from a General Catalyst. Uh, I, I follow him on LinkedIn and he, he had the perfect way to sum it up. He said, I basically get paid to go to fancy conferences to drink here and there and talk. Because um, that's, that's a large part of the conversation is figuring out how you can be helpful across the space. So to the extent that we all are going to these various events, um, like I, I, I went to a demo day yesterday and ran into uh, another fund here in New York that I had uh, danced around with as an entrepreneur. And, and they're great. And I love them. And so it was, hey, we're writing a little bit bigger checks than you, and we see a lot of earlier stage deal. We'd love to push some of the deal flow that we want to track, but it's a little too early for us. Um, so figuring out that sort of space um, and, and sort of um, pushing on the, uh, the, the original question was, you know, how – how, uh, hey, don't worry about my question, man. We, you, you riff as much as you want. I'm, learning, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. taking notes. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Um, so, so that informed process, I guess, is um, based on my background, um, figuring out, you know, other peer institutions, right? Other seed stage, early stage investors. Um, I guess as an entrepreneur, I thought it was a lot more competitive than I've found it to be. It's a lot more cooperative, if, if I'm making up new words here today, um, where, you know, if, if, if a, a, a company is raising a mill, I don't write million dollar checks. So I need to find people as excited as me to contribute. Um, and so a lot of the game really is finding out sort of sister organizations that, you know, both have dry powder in order to actually participate, but also invest in that space they see the model the same way, um, and it works. And it works well also if maybe you overlook something where it's like, oh, red flag. Um, that hasn't happened thus far, but I can imagine the future. In the future, where people attack diligence from different angles, you know, I'm definitely sort of operations and execution focused. Um, but people with a purely financial bent, maybe they uncover some sort of yeah. nugget that I don't get. Yeah, I, I, this this is. Uh... Very, very interesting thread because as you're as you're describing all this, it occurs to me like this is one big conversation. You know, this whole seed stage space. It's like right. it's all in the conversation. You know, and the founders have to be communicating uh, mm-hmm. regularly and just you know. And I'm talking beyond the monthly update. You know that, mm-hmm. that you write to everybody um, because they need to leverage what's going on in their investors' lives, their seed stage investors' lives that can, that can help them. If you don't have that stream going, you're not going to maximize and optimize. And also what you were just saying, um, you know, the more I get to know you and, and your interests and where you uh, are going to add a, lot, a ton of value and the more we communicate and talk, the more when I see stuff is there that I'll, you'll pop up. I don't use streak yet. Maybe I should, <laughs> but the more you're going to pop up in my head and say, Oh man, Jason, he'd be great to look at this deal. Right. And, right, and he'd, right. he'd bring a whole nother sensibility to understanding this marketplace and you know, what, what's involved here. But if you, if you're not constantly in conversation uh, and in that flow, you're, you're really out of the loop and I've seen it. You know, I, I remember, a good friend of mine was kind of, um, he just had gotten into VC, right? And within eight months, the conversation was completely different. And I, right. and we talked about right. it and it was like, it, we, we identified him. He was in the stream, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He got into that information stream and that conversation. And it was just, um, you know, when like pro-am, you know, it just went into a whole nother level. And right. what deals were going on, and he was in that whole stream. Uh, so I guess that, that's a great way of characterizing the, the early stage space. It, it's definitely a conversation stream. Um, and, and, I, and I think I, I you know, we, we've, we've talked previously, Dave, and I think I even mentioned um, my sort of, I don't know if saying this on the air is going to be a good thing or a bad thing, but um, my sort of MO is I'll always say yes to a first meeting and rarely say yes to a second meeting. Um, because you like, like we're just sort of riffing, you know, here, um, I've had a couple conversations where I'll go into the conversation thinking, well, this is probably going to be 15 minutes. Don't really see anything interesting. And maybe the particular person I spoke with, I'm not going to invest in and what they're doing isn't interesting, but they say, oh my God, I have to introduce you to X, Y, and Z because they're such a great fit. And that's happened a number of times where, you have to make yourself accessible. Um, I think all of the sort of brand name um, VCs um, at the seed stage, you know, um, those guys sort of make it a, a sort of calling card that they commit time, whether it's structured daily, weekly, whatever, or they just sort of answer rapid fire on email. Um, but in order to be in that conversation stream, you can't, you can't be a jackass. Right. Um, You've, you've got to be genuine. Um, and that, that doesn't always mean you, you have two-hour long-winding conversations. Sometimes it's like, oh, you're a healthcare company. Yeah, I, I don't do anything with healthcare. My best advice would be um, look at some of the incubator stuff that uh, Cornell and Columbia have put out. Um, 
one of my former employees actually is at the uh, oh boy accelerator that I think Cornell uh, mm-hmm. Med has. Mm-hmm. So so you know I can be helpful in steering you in the right direction, but but that's kind of it. You know I, I, I'm I'm going to help you, but I'm not going to sort of bend over if right. and, and I think that, that also goes both ways. Like I've got a website. Um, I, I've clearly put what I do and what I don't there. Um, I, I think if you can't take the five minutes to figure out, oh, I'm way off thesis, this probably isn't going to work. Well, you're, you're kind of wasting your time as well as mine. Well, now, in, in that post that I referenced before, the painkiller mm-hmm. or vitamin post, you were talking a lot about um, what, what you actually look for in mm-hmm. terms of a team and, and, and these investments. How's your team going to win against all odds? What is your team's unfair advantage? What technical skills are missing? Uh, is the team battle-tested? Have they founded companies prior? Um, elaborate on that a little bit. When... Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess um, I will give Dave Malwini. Uh, so Dave is kind of your peer, if you will. He's the director of entrepreneurship at Carnegie Mellon. And he used, at, at a high level, um, I took a couple of, of his courses, and he would always use the phrase painkiller versus vitamin. So I didn't, I didn't um, coin the phrase, but I probably expanded a little bit based on what he said. But right, at, at a sort of macro level, um, there are sort of your Tinder for cats type opportunities out there. And then there are um, the, the sort of painkillers where it's like, oh, I'm trying to think. To, to me, again, um, I guess um, I'll go back to Smarter Sorting since I already uh, mentioned yeah. them once. Um, for, for the city of Austin, um, they currently pay an employee to light trash on fire. Um, there's all sorts of respiratory health issues. There's costs. There's like, that's a pain in the ass for the city of Austin. If they can, if they can take that pain and not only make it go away, but make money in the process, that's a huge thing. Uh, A vitamin would be, um, I'm not going to mention any companies in particular, but I think you can kind of think of what a vitamin would be where it's, it's at best iterative on something that's already there. Um, I think a lot of sort of fast followers, um, I, I don't necessarily believe that first, uh, first market is a true advantage at scale over time, but if your only advantage is you are the third company and they made it in blue and now it's in red, um, that's not defensible. That's not sustainable. Um, but as, as far as I guess, um, team, I think, I think I'm not alone in that a lot of seed stage investors, um, I look at sort of problem solution market and team, you know, what problem are you solving? Do I believe that it is in fact a painkiller and not a vitamin, a solution? This one's probably the squishiest, um, because over time, that'll evolve. You might say, like, like Uber, for example, they initially went after black cars, but now they've expanded that into a much larger um, set. So, so if you don't have a completely wired tight solution where you've got a really strong hypothesis and, and you've gotten some early interest, I'm okay with that. Mm-hmm. Um, market, you know, it's got to be a big addressable market. It can't be for sort of Summit, New Jersey, we've built a... Uh, chalk bot that paints lines on the soccer fields, but it only works in Summit, New Jersey. Nah, that doesn't interest me. Um, and then team. And, and so I sort of spelled out my thoughts on that. But really, my thing on, t- like, you know, the, the proverbial poop is going to hit the fan. It's going to. Um, I want to know that when things go poorly, you have the intestinal fortitude to get back up and figure it out. Whether that means you say... It could mean that wow, we're going down the wrong road. Um, there are there are plenty of books that speak about you know amazing founders that have sort of reached inside themselves and said this business uh, isn't going down the right road. Like uh, Katarina Flake and I forget her co-founder that founded what is now Flickr, but I think initially it was something around gaming, mm-hmm. um, and, and and so they just kind of said we're not getting traction. Um, but they had a, an ability to share photos of the game within their interface, and that was where everybody moved towards. Um, right. Having that sort of um, 
either battle tested or otherwise, that sort of that courage to say this isn't working, but we're going we're going to sort of move in another direction. Um, I think one of the more uh, famous examples, uh, Jack Dorsey's 140 Reasons Why Twitter Fails, uh, the urban legend, and, and I've still been looking for a copy of it. So if you if you ever find it, I'd love to see it. The, the urban legend is he kept getting uh, rejected by investor after investor after investor. So out of frustration, he wrote the top 140 reasons why Twitter would fail, and so and and, and you know in tweet length okay. at the top of the page and then the rest of the page was a rebuttal as to how he's de-risked each of those things so 140 is is rather lengthy but i've i um as an entrepreneur i would have my top 10 reasons why i knew i being self-aware right yes knowing the top 10 reasons why i'm going to fail and what i've done to de-risk those obviously as you get to series b c and d that risk though th- all of those risks should be gone away and you have different risks um which are much more manageable at, at size and scale um so i think being thoughtful being introspective um which is why um i i, I know charlie o'donnell likes to say he wants to be a bike ride away from any of his investments uh-huh. um i'm a little more flexible than that um uh the the company i keep mentioning uh smarter sorting they're in they're in austin texas so uh, but I've I've done face to faces with them. I've talked with them. I think you know just just grabbing a beer and BSing and saying, you know, what are your thoughts on the hockey playoff system? Sure. You know, does it work? Does it not work? Uh, because you got to sort of see people with their hair down and figure out how they work. Um, like uh, I'm taking a, a train up to Boston the week after next to sort of wrap with a company that maybe I invest in because um, we've talked over Skype and email. Um, but but I like to sort of shake the tree on the team, see how the sort of interactions go. I think way earlier in the conversation, you were talking about sort of what led me here. Um, so my earliest days, uh, I joined the Army out of high school, um, well, one year removed. Um, and so I was privileged and honored enough to work with amazing people that weren't necessarily always well pedigreed educationally. So I didn't have any Stanford and Harvard uh, or, or Columbia um, peers when I was, you know, a, a buck private in uh, Tegu, Korea. Um, but what they made up for in sort of pedigreed knowledge, uh, or what they lacked in, in, in pedigreed knowledge, they made up for in spades in sort of just stick to work hard ethic. Um, and so... I've really, and so after I left Korea, I was in a special forces unit um, and spent a good bit of time in Afghanistan. And so I saw people that had to sort of MacGyver solutions in real time, right? Like literally we had a satellite that took an RPG where people are figuring out what substance or material can we use to sort of fix this satellite where I'm not expecting any of my companies to get attacked violently, but I want to know that regardless of circumstances, they have this sort of creative um, MacGyver attitude. Yeah. Where It's like, oh, we were projecting 10,000 this month. We're only at 6,000. Well, is there a way we can kind of, you know, uh, it looks like LOIs weren't going to hit for another three months. Can we incent them to sort of um, move faster? Maybe it's we give them... Uh, you know, maybe we sort of uh, discount the price because the overall value goes up. Thinking creatively to sort of increase the odds in your favor. And and meeting with people with, quote, their hair down and getting to know them in real context, that gives you a little more <laughs> in, information on, on what they're really like beyond beyond the pitch and what their personality is like, yes? Right, right, absolutely. Preville, one, one more question on the market, and this always uh, befuddles me, quite frankly. Sometimes you see a company where, you know, they're not in a huge market particularly, but there are adjacencies and there are potential partnerships and deals they could cut and, and mm-hmm. you can see it evolving over time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so hard for me and I'm sure many others to figure out that. How do you, how do you think about that? When you, when you see, you know, me, I'm saying great entrepreneur, very MacGyverish, very creative, mm-hmm. right. fa- founder, market fit profoundly mm-hmm. and they're kind of in a 
I don't want to call it a niche, but it's 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 not a billion dollar market. But you could see, you know, it evolving over time. And and and, and it, it let's put it this way: that's one of the most challenging decisions an investor has to confront sometimes. At least I'll speak for myself. No, no, I think I think you're right. Um, so even from earliest angel days. Um, there would be, uh, I was on a couple um, sexier syndicates, and, and you'd see these deals that, in my mind, only work in SF in New York, right? This sort of echo chamber of innovation. Um, and, and you're right, like, if it doesn't work in Cleveland, uh, it, depending on what the product model is, but um, I've, I've, I've seen a, a couple deals that I think really are exactly what you're talking about, where... Um, you have to really say, wait a minute, um, how big can, you know, they, maybe they start in SF or they start in New York and then you say, okay, at scale in New York, how big is it really? And what are their next 10 markets they go into? Um, because New York is the largest city. So for most early stage companies, um, depending on what the product is, certainly, but it's going to be the biggest, uh, addressable market they're going to have in the U S um, I went to a demo day recently where there were a couple of companies where as a consumer, I was excited, yeah. but as an investor, not interested. And I think that's where, um, you know, I, I, I think time and experience and seeing enough deals where um, um, you just kind of have to sort of put on your sort of um, good angel, bad angel and say, right. you know, I'm going to be the bad angel because... I'm going to tell you the hard truth that no one up till now has been, I guess, courageous enough to tell you. Um, like we saw a company where, um, um, and, and uh, I don't know if you know Alan Chung. He's a really smart. Um, he he no. he's 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 been around uh, the New York ecosystem. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to sort of sit in, sit in with him on sort of a uh, a judging panel where we were sort of looking at potential companies, and and he was very direct. I I, I was. I, I was a little um, jealous, I guess, because at the end of this sort of discussion, I felt I was a little too nice, whereas he was very direct. But but it was, I think, extremely helpful because um, his comments in a nutshell were, look, you all seem like smart people. You're in your early 20s. I'd hate for you to have spent the next five years of your life attacking a problem that in the end you just can't get there. Like you've built some really novel, interesting technology, but I think the application is, is wrong. Um, and I think that is the most constructive way to help a company. Like you are smart people. You've yeah. built some awesome technology, but the market you're going after, uh, another example I've seen is there's a company that um, they're going after like an agricultural component. Um, whereas I think, uh, and they had mentioned in conversation, potentially uh, it could also be applicable to um, packaging. Mm-hmm. And so I think the risk aversive nature of your Johnny Farmer versus, you know, polystyrene peanuts, from my angle, it's a lot easier to believe a scalable solution on the packaging. Um, That doesn't mean I'm not excited and I'm putting them down. It's just, it's a conversation. It's definitely a conversation where going back to that, that founder fortitude, if I think you have the pedigree and knowledge to sort of make it work, maybe I'll sort of put a smaller placeholder bet where, um, but yeah, by and large, if I can't believe, yeah, if, um, and and I actually put that in my LP investor deck, like Mm -hmm. I, am very much drawn towards simple business models. Um, you can be pre-revenue, you can, you know, you can tell me that it's nine months before you get to your first uh, revenue check. But if you need three slides on your investor deck to explain how you make money, I'm probably not the fit for you. Um, if you need to really start getting creative with your sort of economics of if this happens, if you start doing parlays, right? <laughs> if this and this and this happen, like, you know, um, because as we've spoken about, things fall off the rails. And when they do, so, so, um, the flip side of that coin is when you when you find these companies that are very strategic and they say, we have three different revenue streams we've identified day one. Um, we've turned this one on. This one's a freemium, but we know we're going to be able to upcharge. And this is a recurring transaction based on monthly usage. Yeah. 
um, those are the deals that get me excited because it's like they've built a moat on three different levels on ways to capture value. To your point on if it's only going to work in, in New York or SF, I'm probably not your first place to go. Speaking while we're on New York, you're also an entrepreneur in residence at Grand Central Tech. Now, we've had Matt Harrigan on Venture Studio. He told us a bunch about Grand Central Tech, but maybe give people an overview of what it is and specifically what you're working on within Grand Central Tech. Sure. Um, Matt is is an exciting dude. Um, Candidly, I don't talk to him a lot because they've segmented us. Uh, we, we um, We have a very specific mission. So Grand Central Tech at the macro level, I think, really wants to put um, New York Tech on the map in a big way. It's almost like, you know, New York is in general. You kind of have a chip on your shoulder, like, hey, screw you, buddy. We're going to make it work. Um, and so the way I look at it is, uh, why does SF have to be the place everybody runs to? Um, why can't New York? And, and certainly there's a much larger ecosystem than only Grand Central Tech. But I think that um, – so, so they have the accelerator – um, on the third floor of the building. Yeah. Um, and that's been well talked about and well hyped. Um, you get uh, one year free uh, rent. Uh, they give no money. They take no equity. And they've got a great stable of mentors and advisors that come in and contribute. Um, as, you, uh, as you graduate from that, if you will, you're encouraged um, to stay within the building. On the 16th floor, they have more of a co-working space. Um, it's a great location. You can, um, when it blizzards and rains, you can walk inside through Grand Central, so you don't have to even carry an umbrella. Very appealing. Yeah, yeah. Um, when there was a blizzard and I had a uh, uh, person to meet, it was it was great. Um, and then on the third floor, where or on the fourth floor rather, where I sit, um, it's a public-private partnership that Grand Central Tech has with the City of New York um, called the Urban Tech Hub. So they've gotten money and partnerships. They have uh, EDC, uh, Economic Development Corporation is one of their partners. Um, and, and so they're specifically focused on um, companies in the sort of um, urban tech space, the smart city space. Maybe easiest would say any company that's not sort of ad tech or fintech. Mm-hmm. Um, so verticals in the space are energy, real estate, um, uh, sort of construction tech, uh, real estate tech, um, anything that's really sort of pushing the, and there are a couple of IoT beacon companies, anything that's pushing the ball forward and sort of making the lives of those within the city better. Um, and, and so my role as an entrepreneur in residence thus far has really been sort of framing out. So it, it's the, it's the newer space. So, uh, the accelerators entering their third cycle um, the hu- urban tech hub just started last fall. Um, so there, there are, there, there's this sort of balance, right? Because people are paying rent. So it's not a free accelerator in the sense of the third floor, but we want to add a lot more value than your typical, and I won't attack any, uh, coworkers by name, but right. your, your sort of branded coworking spaces around, uh, New York, you know, it's, it's great for beer pong and it's great for sort of your, your artisanal coffee. Um, but I don't really feel they're adding a ton of value in a sort of focused, meaningful way across um, topics, across industries. So speakers that we've had in that excite me, um, we've had people from the uh, mayor's office on disability. Um, so there are a couple of companies in the space that are, um, again, in the IoT beacon space. Can they create new and interesting technologies that enhance the lives of those with low sight, no sight? Um, there are energy companies in the floor that are working towards partnerships with New York City Housing Authority. Um, so I would say anyone who's in that space, um, consider us a great place to land. So, so my role has really been on building out that mentor stable. Um, people that um, are really excited and engaging um, whether it's, you know, 30 minutes every six months or an hour every week, go to grandcentraltech.com, uh, com. email us. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's rather new and fast moving, but I think the thread that sort of binds all the floors together really is sort of this energy and excitement about making an impact in New York tech. 
And it, it, as you said, it's it's a big. The city is is fully behind this. They're pushing uh, this initiative, not only at Grand Central Tech but elsewhere in the city, at New Lab in Brooklyn and elsewhere, uh, for different kinds of technologies. Mm-hmm. How do you see it all playing out? Uh, maybe that's the last thing I should ask you. you you're here. Sure. You're a Brooklynite. You, you're, you've pushed all yeah, yeah. in on New York City. What, what, how do you see this playing out? The way that it, it notionally, uh, New Lab and, and Grand Central Tech, I think they have more of a hardware focus, yeah. and Grand Central Tech has more of a software focus. I don't say that to mean if you want to end up at New Lab and you're a software company, that's a great space. Um, and if you are a hardware company and want to come to Grand Central, we'd love to have you. Um, it just it's it's sort of has thus far sort of um, those have been loose fault lines. Yeah. How do I how do I see it playing out? Oh man, I don't want to steal Matt's thunder on this because he's definitely the sort of uh, big thinker on Grand Central. But I think um, so the the building is like 24, 28. It, it's a, a a bigger building. Um, my hope dream, and I think this is definitely aligned with Matt, would be um, you know as as New York tech ecosystem evolves more, um, you can have more sort of nuance and sort of sectors of excellence within the building. Um, right now, um, our floor is 50,000 square feet, which is massive and huge. And, um, and so me and uh, Tyler, Tyler's uh, the sort of intern there who's awesome and amazing and, and really doing a lot of great things. He sort of built a, a spreadsheet where it sort of, um, sort of sector identifies what you know, sort of meta tags are across the space. That way we know what mentors we need to bring in relevant to the skill set. But at scale, what if we said, you know, real estate tech was an entire floor? Um, because it's, it's kind of this ecosystem. Um, I, I, I think one of the next blog posts I'm going to write about is sort of the city stack. Um, if you think back to, you know, 10, 15 years ago when people were really sort of evangelizing the LAMP stack, right? Linux, Apache, MySQL, and PHP. Um, and, and, and sort of, you could certainly use other technologies, but together they really sort of made an enhanced thing. And, and as I look at the city stack, um, what are the sort of technologies across the spectrum where we say, you know, mobility is a component, um, energy optimization is a component, um, traffic awareness, avoidance, things like that. So figuring out across that ecosystem Companies that um, enhance each other, that, you know, um, yeah. I, I think oftentimes early stage companies sort of put up these walls to prevent, you know, you get nervous, you don't want people stealing your ideas. But I think to the extent that a lot of these companies um, are solving similar problems just from different angles and different um, product offerings, um, I, I think I'd love to see the tech ecosystem, both at New Lab and Grand Central Tech and New York in general, where you sort of have, um, I don't want to say silos, but you have sort of fiefdoms of, of, of knowledge. Um, because I think that also if I'm a mentor that's going to come into the space, um, I want my time to be well served on the receiving end so that if I have, you know, a pocket of people that are interested well, maybe I do a small group breakout and ask me anything type thing. But if I've got an entire sea of people that are excited about uh, real estate tech or sort of industrial IoT, um, you can really engage that community. I think New York Tech Meetup really started this a long time ago. And I think that was a sort of virtual component, right, where everybody lives in wherever they live and then come together for events. I think as co-working space really sort of um, shifts the needle where – um, people are no longer sort of signing two and three year leases where they sort of want that agility and flexibility. Um, as you sort of have more nuance around the sectors of things people are doing, I think Grand Central and, and New Lab and some of these other spaces are really well positioned to make all boats rise. Yeah, um, it's like harnessing the next uh, the next layer in this stack. Right, and and I think you know if if I was in every every city. Um, I think Steve Case has something called um, the rise of the rest where he's trying to sort of evangelize. And, and, and I'm, so I'm not going to beat down on other cities, but you know, if you're in a, a smaller place, um, I think sort of that uh, magnetized draw to New York is, well, I'm really struggling with this particular topic. Um, and I know there's an entire floor at Grand Central Tech, 
tech at uh, New Lab uh, that's dedicated to this. Um, Yeah, maybe the rent's a little bit more than wherever I am in sort of upstate New York, but the value that I get from being in this space is 10x what I'm getting where I'm at. Um, And that's the excitement. Um, and it's it's great having you on and, and sharing all these insights. You're you're a systems thinker for sure, <laughs> and and it's not often that we have a Green Beret slash Carnegie Mellon alum slash VC all in one on, on this show. So I, I hope you can come back next year and and we can compare notes again. This has been a lot of fun, my friend. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. Uh, look forward to keeping the conversation going. Take care. Show you around, give you a taste of business, you know?